Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, uh, today we're doing historical inspiration, getting ideas for NPCs, encounters, or even entire campaigns from history, or even myths from the past. Today we're talking to Joseph Stilwell. How's it going, Joseph? Hey, pretty good. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. How, how long have you been playing D&D and running? And... Uh, I, I played a little bit in high school, so back in like the 90s, but then I didn't, I didn't, I made more characters than ever actually played. And then in my early 20s, I really started playing, like I worked at a place with a friend who was like super into it and he would run games for us. And that was where I got sort of my feet really wet. And then I started DMing about probably when I was like 25 and now I'm 30. So I've been playing on and off for about seven or eight years regularly. Cool. So what is it that you like about using uh, history or mythology, legends, stuff like that for inspiration? Uh, well, in general, I think uh, there's a lot of history. Like there's so much you can look at and there's so many different interesting periods and stuff in history, but it's still all really like it's, it's humans, right? Like that's what history is, is people and how they behave ultimately so it's a nice it's a nice way to sort of look for all kinds of ideas on how to run games and what to set games in and sort of yeah like people from history being npcs or like you know settings historically that work really well um so there's just a lot and it's a lot of fun to sort of research history for me like i'm a big fan of just reading about history and learning about history so that that's a big thing for me is just I really enjoy it. So it's sort of like that fun for me of like I'll be reading a book about like the Roman Empire and be like, oh, I didn't know that they had like, you know, not only did they have gladiators, but, you know, the gladiators fought for money or some of them were slaves. So I'm going to write that down and like maybe that can be the backstory of a character that they started as a slave and became a gladiator and now they're this like badass fighter or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you don't like about using uh, history for inspiration? For me, it's sort of like a double-edged sword because I tend to go down rabbit holes of research. Like, I really like researching, so sometimes I'll just, like, be like, oh, I don't know much about this period, so I spend way too much time researching. And then it's like, oh, oh no, I have, like, two days before we're playing, so now I have to actually, like, organize just, like, pages of notes. So, and, um, I mean, I think that's really the only thing I don't like. Um, yeah, I can't really think of anything else, but it's definitely one of those things where you can sort of get lost in it which is a danger. Uh, are there any specific periods of history that are really good to draw from? I mean, most of them are. Um, it's more, my thing is always uh, what periods of history have a lot of material about them because there's some that don't. And that's cool too, because you can just fill in the gaps, especially if you're not actually playing in that period, but sort of inspired by that period. But for me, I really like, I, again, like ancient Rome is a really cool one because we have so much knowledge from that period like they wrote everything down and it was kept and translated to other languages and brought back from other sources and then of course like you the the british really liked the romans and sort of built them up a lot so there's a lot there and then uh early medieval history as well sort of like after the roman empire collapsed but before the rise of really like the single christian church and like you know like europe becoming the dominant power um, that was a really interesting period because there was just a lot of flux and like everything with the, you know, 
people religion the mainstream religion went from paganism to christianity and there were all these different kingdoms all vying to sort of become like the new roman empire and then that sort of changed into feudalism and all that stuff so it's it's a really cool period because the, for a long time they sort of thought oh it's just the dark ages and nothing you know sort of this period where people didn't lost a bunch of stuff and knowledge and actually now they're finding no there's actually a lot of cool stuff in here because it's sort of a period of change and and a lot of a lot of vying for power and really interesting people who we're now only learning more about as we unearth more stuff from that period. Mm -hmm. What about non-Western history, like um, the Indian subcontinent, China, um, South America, North America? Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff too. I I don't necessarily. I'm not super familiar with that history, and like I know that some of it's kind of been misrepresented in the past or sort of downplayed. So I I don't want to. Oh, I don't always necessarily speak to a lot to that period but there are tons of great ones out there like i know uh i actually bought a book that i haven't read yet but i want to it's called 1491 um and it's about how we're actually discovering all these new things about uh mesoamerica like the aztecs and the olmecs and the mayans and sort of all this stuff that they actually had terraformed huge continents and they were in some ways more sophisticated than even the romans or like other empires at the time were and then they sort of collapsed because of ecological disaster and this book really goes into that and i've gotten a lot of like recommendations for it but i haven't read it yet so i'm really hoping to read that and sort of add it to my next campaign because they did a lot in like astrology and stuff like that and calendars and they had their own really cool mythology um like their gods were sort of completely different from the way western society has gods like those gods were seen as more human characters whereas like the gods in mesoamerica were much more like forces of nature like a storm or like the earth itself so that's a really interesting period and then of course uh the Romance of the Three Kingdoms is like the famous Chinese epic, which is a really good one to draw from, especially if you're doing D&D or something like that, because it's all about like that Game of Thronesy, like vying for power and stuff like that, which is a really great vibe. Are there any periods of history you try to steer clear of, and why? Not periods specifically. I, I find the further you get to modern times, the harder it is to apply to, say, like a fantasy or sort of a medieval theme thing, but... At the same time, there's some really interesting things. So I also just, there's some periods that we don't know much about that I do try and stay away from, or periods that, I like guess not periods in particular, but sort of things within periods. Like obviously, you know, a lot of history is full of like racism or sexism and stuff like that. That's, you don't want to necessarily bring that into your game, even though it sort of defined the society in a lot of ways. You know, you try and find ways around that without necessarily like completely blowing it off or you know if your players do want to explore that you want to be able to explore it but still not make it unfun for people like stuff like that yeah. so at the end of the day everybody at the table is supposed to be having fun and yeah if, exactly if you're sitting down and playing a game and two like one or two people are really uncomfortable that's kind of defeating the point well and i think it depends too like you know the nice thing about something like D D or you know, like a Shadowrun game is you can sort of have these fictional uh, bigotry like against elves or against dragons or whatever, where it's you can explore those things without getting into real world ones. And that's sort of better in a way than necessarily, you know, if you play Call of Cthulhu and you're setting it in the 20s and you have a black player, you don't want to sort of like make them have to ruin their fun by actually following the society rules of like what, you know, separation of blacks and whites and stuff like that. You know, you can sort of go, oh, well, if we're going to play this actual historical game, we're going to ignore that part, but sort of like maybe explore something different or, again, depending on your players, you just ignore it altogether. Yeah. So, yeah. We want everyone to have a good time. It, it sucks when 
something like like an aspect that you can easily change for a fictional game kind of gets in the way yeah. of that. Right? Well, and exactly, and it is like you're you're playing you're playing a wish fulfillment game ultimately. So it is about like what you and the players want to have fun doing. Uh, is there anything that you found you have to be careful about when using history for inspiration? Well, um, yeah, like I said, like just thinking about like a lot about like history and why things are the way they are. You want to be careful about what kinds of things you bring in because sometimes you, you you mean well, but something can sort of be uncomfortable. Like if you think about like caste systems in certain societies, like they lend themselves well to games, but then, you know, some people have real world experience with those things and it's uncomfortable. Or um, the other thing too, again, is like the research rabbit hole. You know, you want to be prepared for what you're doing, but you also don't want to just have a game where all you're doing is showing your players cool things about history like they want to play a game where they're sort of the heroes so they don't want to just like it's like oh yeah that's great that you've showed us the 50th like monument of these people but like we want to like go kill some goblins right so you don't want to just research this and then be like oh all this has to go in and my players have to see it and like i have to take them to all these places like you have to still let the players sort of like find what they want in history in that period and stuff like that and at a certain point it sounds like it stops being preparation for a DD game and more like preparation for a novel yeah or like a paper or something right where and that's the other thing you don't want it to just be dry facts about history it's like for me that's cool but for other people it's like they want to see it applied into the game and that's way more fun for them mm -hmm. do you have any tips or tricks for how to adapt a figure from history or from myths and legends for use as an npc yeah i mean a good way to think about it is like history unlike a lot of like really like fantasy sort of the classic fantasy canon of fiction is very like it's not good guys and bad guys it's a lot of more just like different sides and people seeing things different ways so if you do that, you can have a lot of those like shades of gray that bring out like stuff like, yeah, oh, well, maybe I like this warlord and he's a nice guy and he's the ruler of my kingdom and he gives me all these cool weapons and a place to live. But, you know, he's also making me go out and subjugate these peasants and I actually don't want to do that because I have to sort of kill peasants and that's not what I want to do. Like I'm a noble paladin, so I want to fight for these people, not against them. But Or you can have things like, well... You know, I really sympathize with this uh, this rebel priest who's like protecting his flock, but he also has all these rules on like you know what he wants ultimately, and he's planning on killing all these people because they don't follow his religion or whatever. So I have to fight against him, even though I don't necessarily disagree with everything he says, right? Um, and then looking at famous figures too, I find it's cool to find archetypes. Like you know, like you look at people like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or like someone like Louis Riel or someone like that who like led a rebellion or led soldiers to victory. There's a lot of meat there for, you know, sort of the big bad guy in your campaign or whatever. That's sort of really a good way to sort of not only keep like make it a real character with like fleshed out everything. And you can sort of go, oh, like Alexander the Great, like loved horses. He named all his horses, like really kept them all really well. So you can put that into your campaign as like a character thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. When when you take a, a character from history and you put them as the antagonist, not necessarily the bad guy, but the person that the players kind of, because of the situation, are supposed to stop for whatever reason. When you look at a character like Alexander the Great, and when he was conquering the quote-unquote known world, it seems like, you know, if somebody had stepped up and defeated him halfway through his campaign, a whole bunch of stuff would have happened differently. How Like, is there any way to kind of, like, plan for, like, well, if he gets taken down then these are a couple of the ways that 
maybe his empire survives or it crumbles apart. Like, how do you, it's hard. I don't want to say plan because there's so much that can happen, but like, how do you think about what happens when that antagonist goes away? Well, I think you can also look at other examples of that, that sort of did have that. Like Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo before he could really like engage his full plan. Or like, you know, he talked about how he wished he hadn't French France had the colony of Haiti and they had a slave rebellion and he said instead of he his one biggest regret was instead of trying to put that down was instead to say okay you're all free if you join my army and he thought he could have actually conquered the world so it's good to th- look at things like that and go okay well what happened to all of napoleon's kingdoms after he was defeated like his his brother was the king of spain so then spain underwent all these revolutions because there was no way they were going to let this foreign king rule as long as napoleon wasn't backing him up and stuff so i think that's a good way to do it is to sort of look at similar examples and and sort of go oh well this happened in this case or like this happened in that case um you know like genghis khan is a good example like they sort of he spread across a lot of europe and asia and then when he split apart what happened was you know russian is a language that resulted in the mix of like slavic languages and the the languages that the mongolians spoke and it sort of combined into this whole other language so you can think of like oh well cool well, i had this and sort of this culture and this guy took over it but then so it changed like this and now they're sort of their own sort of mix of these two peoples that are very different from the other ones and how can i bring a character out of that or stuff like that mm-hmm. so, yeah i think potentially too you can avoid that problem by having them being more of like a looming threat like you're fighting Alexander the Great's army, but you're not fighting him. You're fighting one of his chief generals or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, do you want to... That's the other thing, too, is depending on what system you're playing and, you know, what kind of themes you want in your game, do you want the characters to be sort of these, like, Caesar, Alexander, Napoleon, history changers, or even, like, you know, history changers like Einstein or someone like that? Or do you want them to be more, like, average people caught up in the sweep of history and sort of more protecting what's local to them and stuff like that and that's again like that's something you want to talk about with your players beforehand bring them in them in on you know think about what system you're playing and how you know what type of characters they're going to play too yeah because if you're playing a more story driven game like fate or some derivative of the star wars edge of the empire system where there's a lot more control of the story in the player's hands on a moment-to-moment basis it's it seems like it could get away from you because the players have much more control versus something like D&D, which is much more mechanical and crunchy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of that's the other thing is you want to think about, OK, well, I if I don't want this to happen, like if I don't want Alexander the Great himself to get killed, then I better use the system to my advantage and make, you know, build in those back doors of like, oh, he has like a priest who will just bring him back to life. Like who will, will literally that's their job is to like grab his body get him out of there and bring him back to life or like an item that will automatically bring him back or something like that. Or even in a system like fate have like one of their sort of story aspects be like already died and came back or whatever. So you can build in those back doors and not necessarily throw your whole campaign out the window while still showing your players that they can like, you know, they killed this guy and now he's freaked out and he's got them on his radar. So that's, they can feel like they sort of affected everything without necessarily wrecking the whole campaign. Um, you mentioned resurrection and stuff like that. How do you work magic into a historical setting? Well, I actually, 
I think I really like to think of magic as similar to technology in that regard. Like you don't have to say like, oh, magic is technology because you can do that or not. But just the idea of it, like imagine if, you know, like most of history for our world, they didn't have, you know, airplanes or, you know, like even sometimes boats or anything that they could cross oceans with. So when you have that, like you have a dragon that you can fly or a griffin or like, you know, a wizard that can teleport you miles, like how does that how did that work in like World War Two or like now when we have planes that can fly you over the Atlantic Ocean in 10 minutes, you know, like that completely changes the way the society works and stuff like that. So you can't necessarily just have ancient Rome if you have dragons flying around because people would have had to figure out ways to protect cities from getting bombed and stuff like that. So again, that's where it's nice to look at a bunch of different periods and sort of weld them together and go like, oh, well, this kind of magic is sort of equivalent to this kind of thing. So or if you don't have an equivalent, that's when you kind of have to use your imagination and go, oh my god, like, how how does this work? Or like, you know, with the resurrection, you can, if a, a warlord can be resurrected a couple times before, like, he's really kaput, then that's a good way to keep your guy in the system every time, right? So, yeah. That sounds like it's another rabbit hole that can be very deep of, like, mm -hmm. you know, thinking of a town in ancient Greece or, like, one of the major cities that has to protect itself from aerial attack and, like, how does that change everything and then all of the, like, knock-on repercussions of that. Yeah. It seems like that's another place where you have to be kind of careful and not spend five days thinking about this when you really just have to be like, no, they've got really good archers. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. And you get that, that is another way to think of it is like, well, how is it, how important is this going to be to my players? Like, are my players going to want to get dragons and like fly over cities and bomb them and figure out how to do that? Or are they just going to be like, oh yeah, there's dragons. That's cool. Well, we're in, still interested in sort of slogging our way in through the city walls and like, or what are you interested in? And then you can sort of narrow it down and be like, well, I could go for five days figuring out how exactly the king protects himself from assassins teleporting, but if they're not going to worry about this king and they're more going to want to worry about this other thing, then that's a good way to sort of go, okay, well, yeah, I'm not going to worry about that too much. I have some ideas jotted down, so then, and we can sort of expand them on the fly, or if the players start to get interested in that, then I can sort of sit down after the session and be like, okay, well, how can I expand this? Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I've heard the most about preparation is only prepare the bare minimum and then just like, yeah, jot it down and forget about it because there's too much that can happen because of your players. Like you're just one person trying to prepare and you have three to six or more people that have imaginations just as good as yours who are going to be coming up with crazy stuff. Yeah, exactly. And don't be afraid to rely on your players, especially if you have another history buff in your group that is really into that stuff and sort of brings you like, oh, I actually found this really cool thing that I was reading about, you know, like the Byzantine Empire in the 7th century and how they had these chariot races and that the gangs were sort of these unofficial street policemen for, for the 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 regime and they, they were sort of this thing. And you're like, oh, well, now I can take these gangs and like have a bunch of antagonists who like, yeah, they're gangs and they're sort of like sneaky and underground and they break laws, but because the king sort of ignores them and lets them do it because sometimes they'll do his dirty laundry then the players have to figure out another way of dealing with them than just going to the king and being like, hey, these gangs are like busting up the chariot races and stuff. Just really quick, having a player that's also a history buff, has that ever been a problem? Like you try to introduce something and then this player is just like, ha I know exactly what to do. Yeah, I think that's that's always a danger. And like I've, I've had that not only with history, but with other things too. You know, if I base my campaign on like a book that I really like or some aspect of it and they start anticipating, then you do have to kind of be like, well, how could I change this up so they can't just be like, oh, I know exactly how to solve this. And like, 
you know, you change things around a little bit. Again, like, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, guys, can I have a 10-minute break while I figure stuff out? And that always helps. But it also, you can use that to your advantage, too, I think. Like, oh, well, maybe this player, you give them, like, a lore role that they can be like, oh, I know about this. Can I roll to see if my character does? And you can be like, yeah, sure, roll. And then if you know stuff, you can give it to the other players. And that's a good way to sort of engage them as well. Or, like, if you are in a system that does allow the players to have a little more story leeway, you can sort of be like, oh, well, you know, you heard about this thing, so tell me a little bit about them. And uh, you kind of fill in that blank there. I imagine that must be a hard balancing act sometimes, especially if the player, like, knows how a puzzle is supposed to work because you based it on a game or a book or something like that. I imagine it's hard to balance taking, like, taking some action so it doesn't go exactly as he expects it or they expect it would but also not, like, punishing them for already knowing about yeah. that thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't want you don't want your players to feel like every time they figure something out or they have that sort of, like, inside track that it's always going to be like, well, now I'm going to change everything, so you're screwed, because that's not fun either. So, I mean, it's, I guess, like, the best way to deal with that is to sort of do it and try it and see what goes too far and stuff like that. And you can always, you know, there's nothing wrong with just saying, like, hey, guys, I think I went a little crazy there. I started going in the opposite direction and I don't really want to do that. Can we have like a retcon or like, you know, oh, you know what? You're right in this case. Like figure it out and move on. But yeah, you can, I mean, again, it's just a lot of like reading and planning and then sort of throwing it out the window when you get to the game because that's that's always the hardest part of GMing that you can't really necessarily, you know, just tell people what to do and now, you know, they have to kind of figure it out for themselves once they get there. Looking at figures from history like, like you're saying, Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan. When you're looking at these figures, how do you determine if this, like, this figure would make a good ally or if they'd make a better antagonist? Or is it just really like, I've got, I need, I need this archetype and this figure from history or legend matches that archetype, I'll use them. I think you can really like chat, like see what your players' characters are too, because that can make a big sort of like thing. It's like, well, if they're all you know, these warriors that want to prove themselves on the field, then maybe a warlord like Genghis Khan would make more of an ally. But if they're more like soldiers in the army of the the town that's about to be hit by this warlord, they make a better enemy and stuff like that. And you can also think about, you know, like, what do my players lack? Like, oh, they don't, they don't have a healer or like they don't have a lot of like material benefits, but I don't really want them to constantly run out of stuff to defend themselves with well then they have a friend who's like a a rich merchant or like a priest who can heal them whenever you know who's a big deal in the town and sort of like this town figure who's their ally and that's a good way to sort of be like well that way you guys don't have to worry about this because we don't really want that to be the focus of our campaign or vice versa you can think about a character like if a character swore you know like to that they've always wanted to join this like society of like duelists or or anything like that, like a society of like, or they, you know, a poor character who wanted to become a noble. Well, then you can sort of play with that and be like, well, what would be more interesting? Like maybe he pisses off this noble and he has to actually do a lot to get back in their good graces in order to join this society that he's always wanted to join. So it's good to think of like your characters, sort of like your players' characters' ambitions and what they want to do, and then sort of see how that can either cause conflict or sort of help you get to the story you want to tell rather than focusing on minutia that you're not really interested in. Mm -hmm. Pulling back from, like, 
specific people, when you're looking at a major event like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan doing their whole conquering thing or Cortez coming to America, like how do you take something like a big, long thing that took years to resolve itself and adapt that into the structure for a campaign? That's a really good question. I think like, again, like you can sort of, you can always do time jumps, like be like, oh, well, this, these first three sessions were here and then we jump six months ahead. But you can also think of like, well, what's more interesting in terms of like, you know, maybe the day to day of that is really interesting of like, oh, well, today we just got to this new continent and, you know, we met the locals and they want to help us, but they've got this other group that they're fighting against and we need to, before they'll show us to like, you know, the fountain of youth or, you know, before they'll share the like their crops with us because we're starving, like we have to help them defeat the, you know, this troll that's been plaguing their, their, you know, village or whatever. And that's a good way to sort of be like, okay, well, within this longer campaign of like, we're here to, we're here to settle the land and like make it sort of like our new home and stuff like that and join forces with these people. Like there are many challenges like, oh, the first step is getting the locals trust, right? Like we have to show them that we're not here to just kill them and take all their stuff. So we help them fight this enemy. That's one session. And then the next session is sort of like more, maybe more of a diplomatic thing where you have a party and you have to sort of like talk to all the local rulers and sort of like get in their good graces. And then the next session, you know, a plague or something hits and you have to figure out how to deal with that while also not ruthlessly quarantining people to die and stuff like that. Like, I think, look at like, there's, there's actually some really interesting stuff in terms of like, they don't always have this, but you know, like if you look at sort of a bigger, like a book that's sort of about the bigger, the bigger picture and sort of the grand sweeping thing of like, you know, like the conquest of America or like, you know, the first crusade, but then you sort of read, maybe go right into the actual historical sources and read like a knight's day-to-day accounts of what it was actually like to be in a crusade. And then you can pick out smaller things that sort of fit within that larger structure. Bed DMs do that too, where they get uh, historical books that are just about like the jobs in a medieval town. Yeah. And it, it's, it can be really good at making a setting feel alive. If you're familiar with some more of the minutia, so it's like, oh yeah, there's a Cooper and he does this and this is what's important for him and stuff like that. It doesn't always have to be super important in the foreground, but it makes a really good kind of base setting. Yeah, and actually that was actually sort of how my my obsession with history and researching history started was George R.R. Martin talking about writing Game of Thrones. He recommended this book called Life in a Medieval City. And that's where he got a lot of the stuff for the details for how, um, you know, King's Landing works and like, you know, the people throwing the slop out on the street and how all the sort of economics of it work. Like he read that book a few times and he recommended it in like an interview. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll pick that up because I'm kind of interested in that. And that sort of became like actually a really good way for me to sort of read about that and then go, oh, I'd really like to read more about this. So what other things are there? And actually, if you are going to read history books, the nice thing about them is most of them have. Uh, bibliography in the back which is basically like a list of other books that you can and you know like even like scholarly papers that you can go and check out after you've read that book so that's that's another rabbit hole but it's also a really nice way to find maybe that book that you're looking for that's more specific and gets into like the the nuts and bolts of it instead of the grand sweep or if you're reading a nuts and bolts book and you want to find a more grand or sweeping book then you can sort of use those bibliographies as way to find your sources and stuff like that one thing that I'm curious on your take on is I think it's the thing I've seen cause the most arguments I've ever seen online outside of uh, alignment issues is economies. Um, because when you look at 
older uh, civilizations, economies were based on something that was limited, whether it was gold or food or whatever. The thing that was valuable was something that was very much finite. But when you start looking at D&D, your players could, over the course of the campaign, maybe they end up killing a dragon and now they have more gold than the three surrounding countries. Like When it comes to that kind of stuff, is it something that you mostly just kind of hand wave it and say like yeah sure they have more than the gdp of these three nations but whatever i'm sure they'll spend it responsibly or do you kind of play with it a little bit and be like yeah you guys have to stabilize the economy have fun with it i hadn't actually thought of that i can destabilizing the economy one specifically i usually figure that if if the players are are like first or third level adventurers like whatever gold they get is sort of an amount that like you know adventurers are sort of like freelancers so they they uh they sort of get like big lump sums that they're never sure if they're going to get more and i actually play with that a lot in my game is like that like if you look at like shows like firefly where they're like oh well, we need our next job because the money's almost out and i sort of like to that's like that's a good way to to motivate your players economically but yeah i hadn't actually thought of the destabilizing one but what i usually do is assume that whatever money the adventurers are getting is sort of like an average sum and then so the kings who are like some of those guys must be like adventurers with 20 years under their belt. Like they're the ones with the huge amounts of money. But I, I guess you, you could actually play it that way and it would be really interesting. And I think history, a lot, especially medieval history, was really a case of like a, a very few people had a lot of the money, like even more so than now. And, and money was actually more of a, it was just a, a signifier that you had a lot of power. Like gold, like peasants, even if they got gold, they wouldn't necessarily be able to do anything with it because it didn't mean anything coming from them. It was like gold was like the symbol of the power that the aristocracy had. So it's kind of interesting to think about like, well, you know, maybe your players start posing as nobles or something like that. I do, I do, I, I kind of tend to hand wave economics because my players don't love getting into the super details of it. But it, I think that would be a really interesting way to think about it. One thing that you brought up of the like the king or noble being adventurer for 20 years and through that having way more money than the players would. How do you, and this might not be something you've thought of, but like when you look at history, like most of the like nobles and whatnot, like you, yeah, you had the occasional, like in the medieval ages, the occasional king who was also a warrior. But my understanding is that most of them were becoming king meant that, meant that you got to get fat because you didn't really have to do anything. How do you deal with, like, players coming to meet the king and instead of this, like, you know, strong, noble figure, he's the guy who just sits on his ass all day and, like, that weird imbalance of power of, like, you know, your the player characters could definitely take everybody in this room, but he's also the king. That kind of weird power imbalance. Well, again, I think that, yeah, that depends a lot on how your players behave. Like, if your players are more the, like, I just a sociopath that kills anybody who gets in my way. Well, then you have to sort of show them the consequences of that. It's like, oh yeah, well you killed the fat king, but now his whole family and noble guard are trying to kill you. Or even worse, now you've destabilized this entire kingdom. There's a, a war on for the throne and you have to choose a side. Um, that's always a good way to go. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that can that can be a really a source of a, a lot of interesting things because... You know, maybe the the players know this like threat of like the the orcish horde is coming down to to destroy them all, and the king sort of like die killed the orcs fifty years ago, and it's fine. So don't worry about it. And they know because they've been out and you know grinding levels, and he doesn't, and that's sort of a nice, 
almost like character like butting heads there and how can they prove to this king no they're coming back and yeah you killed them in your glory days but now it's been 50 years and they're pissed because you killed their parents right yeah so i think that's a good way to do that kind of stuff but i mean that that you're right that has been the case through history of like you know the kings especially later i find that's what's interesting about the early medieval period is a lot of the kings were specifically warriors and that's sort of where that sort of beowulf archetype comes from of like that early period where the only reason after the romans crumbled the only way you could hold on to warriors was by being the best warrior and a lot of the times what would happen is in that early period the king as soon as you slipped you had all these warriors coming up challenging you for your your kingdom or whatever and you had this constant cycle of sort of breaking of kings getting old and slipping and then you know their sons or their cousins or even uh you know someone completely unrelated to them comes in and is like well i'm stronger than you so i challenge you and that's something that your players could do too is sort of be that challenger and then surely yeah they are stronger than the king but then they have to navigate the the all the other people who want favors from them and be sort of like robert baratheon where yeah you were a great warrior but maybe you weren't a great king Speaking of favors, um, I've been reading the Dresden Files recently, and he talks a lot about, in the books, they go a lot about the the code of honor, kind of, of how, like, old world code of honor of, like, if you're a guest in somebody's house, it meant something. And also, like, looking back at history, it seems like there's a, lots of webs of allies and people that you owed favors to and stuff like that. Have you ever used the more diplomatic intriguey side of history to put together a campaign or stuff like that yeah i have um i i actually there's a game called exalted i don't know if you guys have ever played it it's um familiar with it haven't played it's it. it's sort of like it's basically the idea of um it's like well what it what you know D, if D D is sort of tolkien and european mythology then exalted is sort of like romance of the three kingdoms wuxia films and you know like especially it's really influenced by hindu mythology and they specifically, because it's on the White Wolf system, the, the social side of the system is much more robust. And that was actually really the game that introduced me to like, you can literally build a character whose whole job it is, is like they're a diplomat. And they literally, they can barely fight. They, you know, they can defend themselves if they need to. But like, if they were fighting a warrior, they wouldn't stand a chance. But they could literally convince that warrior that they have their best interests at heart and they're here to make them not only a better warrior but also famous or whatever and i think D is is tricky in that regard because it it is based on a war game ultimately so it's not impossible to do it but you sort of have to just rely on your players trusting you and believing because there's not a strong set of rules but i think that's that's a really fun part of it too is like you you can sort of really um, with the system like Exalted sort of really bring out that there's a lot of rules for how to do those intrigues and sort of convince people of things that they want by finding out what their, you know, their desires are and sort of there are rules and stuff. I think I got a little off track there, but yeah, no, I think I have done that a lot. Actually, I generally tend to find that that's really where your players sort of get interested character wise is like, no matter how great a fight is, it's still like, oh, I roll to hit and blah, blah, blah. And that can be exciting. But you know, you kill this guy and then he it's like, oh, well, his brother comes for revenge and his brother is like this, the opposite where he's like, his brother is like connected with all these people and he starts screwing you and like messing with your friends and stuff. And that's where really the char the players and the characters get attached is through that intrigue and stuff like that. It sounds like in, in more combat focused games like D&D &D, that you kind of have to 
kind of rely a little bit more on the role playing side of things, just trusting that your players will get into it and that you're also going to kind of remember, like, if you come up with a code of conduct for, like, you know, if you're a guest in somebody's house and all that kind of stuff, that you're going to remember it too. Yeah. Um, actually, I guess one of the specific examples I'm, I'm, I've been running a game now where part of the thing is I look, I was reading about early Celtic societies and how they have grave goods was a big thing. Like your stuff that you, you had when you died, it was buried with you. Cause if you didn't, you would, you would come back and haunt whoever took it. Right. So I actually took that really far in this campaign where, you know, my players are so used to this idea of like, Oh, well, to stop a zombie from coming back, we just have to burn the body. But if you do that and still take the grave goods in this world, the ghost will follow you attached to those goods and not in a good way, in like a cursed item or a malevolent way. So the players can't just do the normal thing of like looting corpses for new stuff. They actually have to sort of like find other ways of like, you know, like tra trading favors with the blacksmith. Because if you kill this guy, not only do you have to not take his sword, you have to bury him and make sure he gets proper burial rights or his ghost will chase you around and, you know, cause a curse on you or whatever when you can't necessarily get rid of it without going to an exorcist or something like that. And there was a whole class of exorcists that roamed the land, just sort of extinguishing these rogue ghosts and charging for it and stuff. So that was a whole interesting side world. That could make a, a, a really interesting entire campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of my players was like, well, if my character dies, I want to roll one of these exorcists. And it was, it was like, oh, yeah, well, now i got to figure out how to actually make that like a PC <laughs> instead of an NPC. But okay, <laughs> yeah. that's going to be fun. Cleric? <laughs> well, that's what I did. I mostly that that was a cleric base with a lot of sort of flavoring to it that sort of worked that way. When you're applying, this is less for myths and legends, although there might be still an issue there. But when you are taking something from history, and we've touched on this a little bit already with the like racism and whatnot, yeah. what are issues like other issues that you can face when you're doing this, and and how do you deal with those issues? Um, well, I think like religion is a really big one because religion in a lot of fantasy role-playing games is very different from the way religion works in the real ancient world. Um, you know, in D&D, like you have this pantheon of gods that literally like they walk the earth and they sort of like have people that they give, you know, they can literally zap you with a bolt of lightning, like um, without getting into a debate of like whose religion is right. We didn't necessarily have that in history as far as I know. So that's a big thing when you do like a, apply history to a real world is you got to think about, well, do I want to make religion more realistic? And then, you know, how does that change everything? Like the structure of like, you know, like if you look at um, the ancient Roman empire, like often the, the emperor was also named the head priest, which is like a huge, like to us in a society where we separate church and state, that's a huge conflict of interest. But in Roman society, it was just so natural, but that also creates a thing of like, well, if the king is the priest, like what sort of powers would Bahamut give his priest who's also a king? And like, what does that mean for Bahamut versus like another god who maybe doesn't have as much power and can't make their priest the, the king or whatever? Where the head of the religion, it's just a bunch of people out in the, the wilderness versus this empire with a king and millions of soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. And even just the idea of gods, whether they're human or whether they're sort of more inhuman, like the Mesoamerican gods who sort of represent more abstract forces. And, and how do you like make that work in a game where like you have this god that's described as having like three heads and throwing lightning bolts that also turn into snakes or whatever and stuff like that. And like, 
you know, how do you apply that to if they actually want to fight that god or sort of like one of their aspects? Like, well, how do I mechanically represent that without making them impossible to defeat or like having some kind of trick that does that feels too cheap? Like, oh, well, you just have to say their secret name and then they turn into a mouse or whatever, <laughs> which is like if you that's cool and that's a cool thing for mythology. But and religion but if you know if your players know that then they can just like go oh well, i'm going to learn all the secret names of all the gods and turn them all into animals and then whatever and then it's like well my yeah. campaign went out the window now you've destabilized the entire world yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that the idea of like true names is something that i'm a little bit familiar with and mm-hmm. like while that could be something fun to play with it's also that is a very huge stick to give your players yeah, exactly and that's that's another thing is you want to think about like well, with all these history things and and my players destabilizing history, like, well, what do I do if they do that? Okay, well, I better have a backup plan and stuff like that to a certain extent. But there's just so many things with religion in particular that don't necessarily translate to certain games that you either want to avoid. And then there's the whole issue of, are my players religious? If this is too close to their religion, like, is this going to sort of feel a little blasphemous or whatever? Like, do I want to bring this to the table? You know, do I want to get into stuff that sort of is very close to religion today? Or do I want to sort of look at, you know, equivalent societies in the past and stuff like that? And how can I sort of take bits from each one and combine them to sort of make it something that doesn't hit too close to home and doesn't feel like an attack on my player's personal beliefs and that kind of thing? Yeah, it feels like that's kind of the the thing we've heard from everybody we've talked to so far is is talking to your players. Communication is key because... At the end of the day, we're all here to have fun, and you're not going to know if your players are having fun if you don't talk to them and make sure that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, final question: um, What do you wish you now tell yourself when you started running D anD D about using historical inspiration in your games? I think I would say just um, don't get too hung up on the details and like putting all this detail in, and then making sure your players see it and see how clever you are. Because that's sort of the ultimate downfall is like, instead of going with the story where your players and you both want to go is trying to force them just to where you want to go and be like, like I said earlier, like, let's do the grand tour of all the monuments here. And it's like, well, if you can't work that into some kind of thing. And what I did learn eventually was it was like, oh, well, if I want them to see all these things, then I have to make them objectives that the players want or whatever, right? Like, oh, your character wants to be the best wizard. Well, he needs to read these nine tomes that are in these six different places around the world because i want you to see those because that's more of a way to do it without just being like and then you go here because i said so so <laughs> that would be my guess is just like let your players more dictate things and then figure out how you can bring in the things that you like around your players thank you so much for coming out thanks for having me is there uh, anywhere our listeners can find you online um i, I have a, a a blog that i write about role playing and dming in specific that I haven't written for about, I think, a year now. It's totalpartythriller.tumblr.com. Should I do non-D&D stuff? Yeah, if, if you want, yeah, a, go for I it. I have a webcomic that I write, and a friend of mine draws it. It's called Blue Skies Over Nine Isles. It's sort of like a post-apocalyptic, sort of more positive thing about like rebuilding after the world's over. And that's at blueskiescomic.com. That actually sounds really great. I'm yeah. going to read that later. <laughs> uh, I'll give you the link. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Our logo and other artwork is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play.
You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DMs of Vancouver, all one word. We'd love to hear from you folks about topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Lastly, if you want to help us out, we've got a Patreon account where you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Each little bit helps, and all the money will go to making this podcast as awesome as possible. See you next time, folks. Roll for initiative!